Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, it's my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Baratheon-Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hey. So since we recorded the last episode and this episode, Davidson has locked up a regional sweep. They become only the second number four seed to sweep a regional after College of Charleston in 2014. And here's a little bit of analysis from Baseball America's John Manuel, who not only is probably the foremost expert on college baseball in the state of North Carolina, he is the dean of the National College Baseball Media. He said Davidson is as unlikely a four seed to win a regional as there's ever been. So they're following up this weekend with a super regional at Texas A&M. And the winner of that goes on to the College World Series in Omaha. And since Texas A&M plays in College Station, which is like an hour and a half from Houston, I'm proud to announce that you're flying down here and crashing on my couch and we're going to the games together. So we'll have an update for that next week. This is the first I've heard of this, but I will uh, immediately make plans. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. It's so often when we talk about something or write about something that is improbable, it immediately ends. It's sort of the article slash podcast version of the Sports Illustrated cover jinx, right? Whenever something comes to our attention, it's because it's odd, it's unexpected, and that means it's probably about to stop happening. So good for Davidson for surviving the Ringer MLB show jinx, and and good for the Astros, too, because we did a whole podcast about how great the Astros were when oh, they had won. streak now, though. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they won, what, seven in a row? Then we did a podcast about them. Normally, the winning streak ends immediately, right? When we talked about the Rangers, their winning streak ended right <laughs> Right after we had scheduled a podcast about them, the Astros managed to extend their streak by another four games after we did the podcast before they they dropped a couple. So we're bad for teams, but good for players, I think, because we because, <laughs> you know, Eric Thames is probably the most notable example of a guy we had on who then blew up. But Dozier was sort of big by the time he was on. Alex Bregman blew up after he was on the show. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's I, I guess that's good for Mets fans, considering who we've got on the podcast today. Yeah. Speaking of blowing up in a bad way. We are going to talk a a little later in the show to Noah Syndergaard, who, of course, is resting and rehabbing to return from his injury. So we'll ask him where that stands and we'll ask him about injuries and we'll ask him a few non-injury related questions just for a change about the Mets. But a couple of things we wanted to talk about first. Related to Syndergaard and the NL East, I I wrote something for the site about the two Eastern divisions because they are on completely opposite ends of the division strength spectrum. So there are a few ways you could measure the strength of a division, but one good way is to look at a division's performance against opponents outside of its division. How does it do when it's not playing itself, essentially? And if you look at these two divisions, they come out stronger by that metric than almost any other division in history in the AL East case and weaker in the NL East's case. I looked at the average run differential advantage in in games against non-divisional opponents. I looked at the strength of schedule and made some adjustments there with the help of Dan Hirsch, a uh, baseball analyst. And we found that only three divisions have ever been stronger than this year's AL East so far. And that's including the 2001 and two AL West, which were four team divisions, obviously. 
obviously easier for a, a smaller division to be extreme in one way or another. So only the 2008 AL East was stronger and only by a little bit than this year's AL East. And this division has a chance for every team to finish at 500 or better. If you look at the projections, that is actually projected to happen. The Rays and Jays are kind of on the border there, but that would be only the third time that that's ever happened after the 1991 AL West and 2005 NL East. So the 91 AL West, is that five teams over 500? Because that they were... Yeah, 91 was before realignment that uh, brought us to three divisions. So yeah, that was actually a seven-team division, and somehow all of those teams were over 500. Yeah, it is. So the difference, I think, with this year's AL East, it's just that there's no bad team. The highs are not as high as they have been some years, but the lows are not as low. It's very possible that all of these teams will win as many games as they lose, even if no team wins many more than 90 games. It's just kind of a, a dogfight, and it's probably going to continue to be that way. And that has a lot to do with the the Yankees' overperformance, of course. A lot of people expected them maybe to finish last. They have been first to this point and have played about as well as any team. And the Red Sox have come on lately. The Jays have recovered from their terrible start. The Rays and the Orioles are chugging along. So this is just a, a really top to bottom strong division. The NL East is just the polar opposite in every way. So only two divisions have ever been weaker by the metric I used than the NL East to this point. That's the 2005 NL West, which was won by the Padres at 82 and 80, which is a, a sad record for a division winner. And the 2002 AL Central, which had a couple hundred lost teams and This obviously has a lot to do with the Mets and their injuries. Who would have ever guessed that the Mets would have the second highest staff ERA to this point in the season? Despite the pitcher's park, despite all the talented young pitchers, they just haven't had them on the field yet. And you wrote about the Phillies and the sad state of their rebuild, or at least their 2017 team. They have the worst record in baseball. How much pessimism should there be about the Phillies? Because in the abstract, it's not such a bad thing that the Phillies would be the worst team in baseball. They are in the heart of the rebuild, but I think there was a sense that they were coming out of it, that the worst was behind them and that they were on the way up. And that has not at all been the case. Yeah. I Phillies fans are notably optimistic people, but uh, you would expect, I I certainly expected them to sort of be on the way up. It's just, they had already started to bring a lot of the good draft picks that they had had with Nola and Crawford was supposed like, you look at back, I don't know, to where we were maybe 18 months ago, I think everybody would have expected J.P. Crawford to be at least in the major leagues by now, and he's struggling at AAA. And I think that's the because he was supposed to be the guy like he was supposed to be the next. I mean, it's really awful to put this kind of expectations on a young player, but he was supposed to be either the Jimmy Rollins or Chase Utley of the of the next good Phillies team. And Mm -hmm. the power is just gone right now in a way that really makes you worry about his you know, his viability is a long-term prospect, which is doubly disconcerting because a lot of those guys like Crawford and Aaron Nola were supposed to be really safe picks, like really polished guys that wouldn't be susceptible to the kind of boom and bust performance that they've had so far. 
But mm-hmm. at the same time, like it's, you know, it's only been a bad few months. Like this is what I ended up sitting on as I ended the piece. Like, I don't know where else they go. Like the best thing to do right now is probably just to ride it out and see which of these guys are hurt or slumping and, and which it's time to give up on. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the Phillies are, are one of, I'd argue, three teams that are having as close to a worst case scenario uh, season in that division as as uh, <laughs> yeah. you could have you know with the Mets and I mean even the Braves like the Braves record's pretty good right now but you think about the guys you would expect to be good Julio Tehran's been below replacement level Dansby Swanson's been below replacement level and Freddie Freeman got hurt and you know the less said about Bartolo Colon the better mm-hmm. um, even even with all that the Braves are still I don't know, I guess about where where we would have expected them to be record wise so yeah it's uh it's rough in yeah. the bottom of that division. Yeah, and that's how you end up with one of the weakest divisions yeah. of all and, time to this and point. And it's a confluence. Of, the Mets were always sort of vulnerable to this, just because they were they were sort of thin offensively, and mm-hmm. so they were so invested in pitching. But they've also got two teams essentially doing close to a hard tank in that division, and the Marlins right. just being adrift. And you know, we don't. It's uncomfortable to talk about the impact of Jose Fernandez's death mm-hmm. just from a baseball perspective, but that's huge for like that's a franchise altering event for for a team like the marlins that really needed all the help they could get so yeah i mean there there's one good team in the division and that's how that's how this happened right yeah and you mentioned there are two nl east teams rebuilding one that's sort of perpetually mismanaged and in al east i mean when was the last time an al east team could be said to have rebuilt you know tore down its roster and and rebuilt it's just not something you yeah. you do like we made a stink about the yankees doing that just last summer and all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're in first place again with the second best run differential in the american league right the red sox and now the yankees have managed to rebuild on the fly and remain competitive while infusing their system with talent and that's something that i think it's obviously easier to do when you have their payrolls and if you look at the the mismatch between the al east and the nl east there's like a $130 million combined difference in payrolls between those two divisions. And obviously the AL East is almost every year strong because you have the Yankees spending, you have the Red Sox spending to keep up with the Yankees, you have the other teams spending to keep up with those teams. And so it really keeps anyone from ever truly bottoming out in the way that we are seeing NL East teams do now. And we're still seeing lopsided results in interleague play. And we did an episode on this last summer, but the AL so far has a 587 winning percentage in interleague games with more than a third of them behind us. And a lot of that difference comes from this AL East, NL East gap, which is just enormous right now. Yep. All right. So let's bring on Noah. He is making the rounds right now to promote a hot sauce. So if you're wondering why he starts talking about a hot sauce for a minute in the middle of this interview, that's why he's not just uh, spontaneously there was no hot sauce. No, no break. Yeah. Although, <laughs> although I can stand to talk about hot sauce every episode. I'm... Yeah. Well, you're a Texan these days. So these days. you know what it's like. <laughs> not at heart. All right, so let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back with Noah Syndergaard. 
Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you didn't need. I've done those things. I'm happy not to do those things. And when you use your Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Even if you're like me and you have sensitive skin that no aftershave can protect, Dr. Carver's Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave, which helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights razor bumps, so you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. In your first month, you get a weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at the regular price. There are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like. And you can only get this offer at dollarshaveclub.com slash MLB show. That's all one word. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash MLB show. All right, so we are joined now by Mets starting pitcher Noah Syndergaard, who, of course, is rehabbing from a partially torn lat muscle. Noah, good morning. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. So, of course, we will start with the standard question that everyone wants to know. How is the rehab going and what's your timetable look like, if you know? You know, uh, rehab's going really well. Um, It's kind of going a little slow right now, but that's all about just having patience and, and knowing that the the lat's a little tricky muscle to to rehab there's really no cookbook recipe for it it's all about how you're feeling right now i got i have no pain i just gotta continue to work on my my flexibility and my strength uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen again Mm -hmm. so this isn't the kind of injury where you can just like put your arm in a sling this is like you know in your torso so how does that affect you off the mound in your day-to-day life well the actual like tear itself happened like in uh almost in my armpit area um, but everyday life, it's normal now. I mean, I, I can take finally take a shower um, with no pain, so that's that's good. Other than that, I mean, I'm just I'm able to to live a, a normal life. Mm-hmm. And are you past the stage where you have to do no baseball activity and just rest and and wait for it to heal, or are you still in that phase? Uh, I'm still able to like uh, work out and, and and train my legs and my core and work on flexibility as much as possible. Um, but staying away from all my upper body stuff, I can't, I can't throw. Um, so it's going to be a while so I can, I can pick up a ball and get ready to throw again. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a team that has suffered a, a bunch of injuries, is it harder, I guess, to miss that time to be away from the team or, or not to be contributing when you're not the only one, when there are other people in the same boat? Does it help to have people to commiserate with or does it just make it worse that things aren't going well? Um, well, one, one guy I can mention off the top of my head that's been through it all and he deserves a parade and his honor is, uh, David Wright. You know, he's, yeah. he's always in the clubhouse every day and it must be really hard for him because, you know, he's been going through some stuff and he, he wants to be out there as bad as possible. He's always present in the clubhouse and that's something that I want to emulate is, I mean, I'm always in the clubhouse during the games, whenever, uh, the team's at home, uh, whenever the team's on the road, I'm, I'm, I'm glued to my TV. Um, that night. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult not being out there to, to watch, but uh, I definitely want to be out there supporting the guys. And it's got, I mean, the, the Mets have had kind of a rough go of it since you've been on the shelf. How has that been to, to watch knowing that you can't do anything about it, at least for the, the time being? Um, it's, it's difficult. I want to go out there and help the team as much as possible. But yeah, I also know we have a lot of great uh, veteran leadership, um, guys like Curtis Granderson, 
Neil Walker and I mean Jay Bruce. Those guys are are the backbone of the our team right now, and uh, um, they got great leadership skills, and they're just all around great guys and and better better competitors as well. Is there anything in retrospect that you would do differently if you could do it over again? Whether it's your off season preparation or how things went before that last start? No, I have no regrets with how things went. Like I, I handled it the right way. Um, I was able to go out that Sunday and, and pitch with no pain. It just something happened that day, and my lat couldn't withstand it, and just finally gave out. Mm-hmm. You see it as being disconnected, a, a different injury from whatever you were struggling with before that? Yeah, the, the two were unrelated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was an article in New York Magazine last month that was headlined, Injury Was Inevitable for Noah Syndergaard. And I think, you know, a lot of people watching you have loved watching you and have sort of marveled at your stuff and how hard you throw. But often the reaction is, well, look what has happened to, you know, this other pitcher who threw hard and he got hurt and that other pitcher who threw hard and and he got hurt. And I'm sure you come across that kind of reaction. It must be hard to avoid entirely. So when you see that sort of thing, do you get angry about it? Does it bother you? Does it make you feel anything or are you able to ignore it? No, I feel like it's really easy for people to become a, a Monday quarterback when it's not them, and I know everybody's entitled to their <clears throat> their own opinions and thoughts. But uh, yeah, I don't, I can't control what's outside of my power. But all I know is that I'm, I'm really excited to get out there back on the fields, and uh, you know, just ready to go. When you do make it back, what can you do to prevent a, a recurrence of this injury or or any other injury? Is there anything you can do to minimize the risk or is it just sort of keeping yourself in shape and hoping that your arm holds up? Um, you know, it's just really all about trying to maintain my flexibility. And that's all I can really say on the subject of preventing this from ever happening again. All I know <laughs> is that I'm working really hard right now in my rehab sessions and uh, in the in the weight room to make sure that this does not happen again. And I think fans are often very quick to comment uh, when when players get hurt, when it seems like there's any delay in their return. And obviously, there's a lot that the public doesn't know about what's going on behind the scenes, what the symptoms are, what the MRIs are showing or not showing, what the player is is doing to prepare. What is do you think the appropriate level of feedback from the fans if if fans are frustrated about the way that a team has handled injuries from the outside from afar is that appropriate is that fair should fans reserve judgment and say we don't know the whole story here or do you think it's fair for them to get upset when there seems to be a a trend yeah i mean i can see why fans would definitely get upset with uh players of their their respective teams going down but maybe sometimes they don't have the full scoop of the story and maybe they're sometimes they're quick to, to make judgments I, I really don't know so you know it's been a little bit of a running joke around the baseball community looking at the way you are now versus like the old awkward high school pictures about you know perhaps more for you than any other player what was undergoing that evolution like you know from when you were a junior in high school to picking up that velocity and growing getting stronger and then eventually getting to to where you are right now was it like you know getting bit by the the spider? Yeah, it's that's a pretty good analogy. It's pretty it was pretty crazy. It's just that it, it, it happened when probably my junior year when I was just fed up of people telling me I couldn't do something, and I was just sick about that. And I knew I wanted better for myself and and uh, a better better life. So 
So I just continued to work as hard as I possibly could to achieve my goals and I made it to the big leagues and I'm still staying never satisfied. So I was going to continue to get better. And was there anything pitching wise that you were working on this season that you will be working on when you're coming back? I mean, you, you look at the numbers and it, it seems like there's not a ton of room for improvement, but I assume that every player thinks of something that he can do or wants to do. You know, I always want to make the game as easy as it can possibly come. So uh, always try to achieve perfection, even though that's kind of hard to attain at all time. But always uh, shoot for that. And it seemed like as you were starting the season, your control had improved even from the point where it was last year. Is control or command harder to maintain when you're throwing sort of at max effort? Is that something where you ever consider taking something off and saying, you know, I need to throw a strike here? Or have you found the ability to hit your spots even if you're throwing as hard as you possibly can? Um, yeah, I've definitely considered that. And I've thought about it when I do come back, you know, because I may be working from like 95 to the 98 range. And then when I ever need one, reach back for like a 101 or 100. Um, but in my Previous experiences, um, when I've tried to, like, say, go 90%, I, I sacrifice location. Mm-hmm. So it's like you need to sort of go all out in order to just, like, does it play with your mechanics when you take a little bit of something on it? Or did- when you try to slow things up, it slows everything down, and then you sacrifice location. I mean, the, the book on you is, is always started with, with the big velocity. So when you talk about pitching with other pitchers, how do you sort of translate what you're able to do, you know, to be able to reach back for, for 100 or 101 whenever you want it and, you know, sort of learn from guys who maybe don't have that top end velocity? Uh, like, what do you mean? Like the difference between me throwing 100 and someone like throwing 92? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just like messing with, uh, I've always known that, Hitting is all about timing, and pitching is throwing off that hitter's timing. So, I mean, if you can get a ball quicker to, to home plate, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult to, for him to adjust to anything that's like, a say, like a slider of mine, which is like 92, or a curveball. Like, just the, the speed differences are just uh, favoring mine. Yeah, and there's been sort of a, a trend in the last few years, pitchers going to the breaking ball more often. The curveball has become more common sort of as, at the expense of, of fastballs often. And when you have a fastball like yours, I guess, how do you decide what the the optimal percentage to use it? Because you'd think that it would be easy to fall in love with it and just keep blowing it by, guys. Is there a certain percentage that you feel like makes it the most effective or do you just kind of go by feel and, and by how the hitters are reacting? It probably just all depends on the particular hitter that's at bat at the moment. You know, mm-hmm. someone like say John Carlos Stanton and I have him O two, then I can probably and you know, if I've gotten to that count by throwing ninety five mile hour fastballs, I can probably elevate one in the zone at a hundred. Mm-hmm. And you might be more likely to swing at it. Mm-hmm. Are you someone who devotes a lot of time to scouting reports, or are you just kind of going with your strengths and and hoping that that's good enough? Um, a little bit here and there, like in uh, tricky situations, like they say Stanton again, and it's late in the game, and you have two men on with him batting. Then yeah, you might be able to stray away more from your strengths and try to expose his weaknesses. Because you definitely don't want to get hurt in that kind of scenario. How much do you talk with the other guys in the starting rotation? Because, I mean, you guys, when you're all together, you know, we saw what happened 
you guys make the World Series. But how much do you feed off the other guys in in the rotation, like DeGrom and Harvey and, and Matt's when all you guys are clicking? And how much do you guys sort of, because you are sort of different pitchers, try to have to try to, you know, make your own way, approach hitters differently, pitcher to pitcher? Really, we're all like a tight-knit family together. Um, I treat those guys like they're my brothers. Before each starts, uh, whether we're pitching or not, we're always going to go out there before the game and watch the pitcher for that day warm up. Yeah, we're just always rooting for one another. It's like, uh, but we have a little sense of camaraderie and competition. We're always trying to, to be the best that we can possibly be. You mentioned Stanton. You've faced him 12 times, and you he has not gotten a hit off you. You've struck him out half of those times, so whatever you're doing against him seems to be working pretty well. I don't want to hit one back on my face. That's, that's a moneymaker. He's hit one 500 feet off me all he wants, but it's not back at the face. <laughs> are there hitters who you know regardless of their results against you have been particularly tough against you or who you felt like your your normal approach isn't that well suited for i mean chris bryant he's got a ton of talents like manny machado Corey seager um i mean even though he's a, a rival um, bryce harper got a lot of a lot of respect for that guy um, watching him play mm-hmm. other than that I mean, those are some uh pretty good pretty good guys right there mm-hmm. and you're obviously pretty active on the internet you're sort of a, a personality who people know even if they aren't Mets fans or maybe even if they don't follow baseball that closely and I'm sure your teammates you kind of got a, a cross-section of people who are active on social media that way and who totally keep to themselves do you talk to people about that do people come to you and say you know how do I become a well-known on the internet or are a lot of players just not interested in in interacting in that way no i I think um i I mean i love social media i think it's a great way to interact with your fans and for your fans to see that kind of personality that they're not able to see when they're when you're on the fields Um, especially because we have so many passionate fans and you know there's a lot of passionate fans with cholula as well which is why i decided to to partner with them because like i mean with the order of cholula you have this place to where all these passionate fans with cholula can come we have guys with like one guy lost 60 pounds and decided to have a Cholula bottle tattooed on his arm. So I think that's amazing. And uh, it was really cool. Since you brought it up, I mean, did you, you know, they've got the the special edition hot sauce flavor coming out. Were you involved at all in how, in making that or? I was not involved in, in the new flavor, but I, I tell you, I did, I did try it the other night and it's quite amazing. Got a little bit of a kick to it, but you, you kind of like the kick at the same time. Yeah. What is your pre and, and post game meal? What does it look like? And does that something that goes hand in hand with throwing hard? Oh well, yeah. I mean, coming from Texas, I mean, always about the hot sauce, you know, but we're all always about the flavor and we want the, the spice to really uh, overcome the, the flavor of the food. And that's something Shalula really helps out with. Um, it's got great flavor, but it doesn't uh, overpower you with spice. But yeah, I, I use uh, like a, the bowl of doom. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Sweet potato hash with bacon. What else? There's ground bison. I put venison, sausage in it, scrambled eggs, avocado, and uh, top of Cholula. Is the the hotness of a food? Are you someone who really likes spicy meals or or flavors that are almost an endurance test, or are you not someone who who goes in for that sort of thing? Um, I mean, I do like a little kick to it, but nothing too overpowering. Still, just all about the flavor. Not like really putting too much spiciness on, on things to overcome the actual flavor of the food. So 
you brought up coming from Texas and you were drafted in the Toronto system and traded to New York. We've talked a lot about um, Ben and I have about how amateur players coming out of high school, like baseball is not a job. It's, it's not a normal job in that where you choose who you work for and where you live right out of high school or college. So how is landing in New York? How has the adjustment been for you as someone who might not necessarily have planned on being there when you grew up? You know, I, to be honest, I really can't get enough of the city. I love it. You know, coming from a, a small town in Texas, my first time to New York City was in 2013 for the Futures game. And I just fell in love with Times Square. And now I, I mean, I try to stay away from it as much as possible. <laughs> but um, just I was mesmerized by all the lights, and uh, I fell in love with it ever since. And uh, I mean, I look forward to exploring something new about New York City every day. Um, I think it's a great city, and uh, I look forward to playing here for the hopefully as long as my career allows. I love how you can just walk outside and and find something exciting to do. You know, if you uh, ever find yourself in bored in New York City, then you might have a problem. So yeah, I just I love the city as, as much as anyone does. So when when you walk outside, do you find yourself getting stopped on the street by fans a lot, or are you you know are you at that level of fame where you need to like get in you know put on sunglasses and get into a car with tinted windows to go anywhere? Uh, no, I'm not like that yet. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll get stopped in the streets every once in a while, um, which I think is something that's really cool. I think the the hair might have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. How do you resist the the temptation at times, right? Because there's always something to do. There's a lot of nightlife as a successful young baseball player. Obviously, you have a, a lot of opportunities in that area, and yet, you know, you have to maintain some focus on the field and preparation, and and find some balance there. So, what is that balance, or who, or what has been helpful to you in finding that balance? Um, I know it's New York City, but not necessarily do you have to have you have to go to a nightclub or or go out and party to have fun in, in New York City. Um, I just love embracing the culture, the diversity of, of people here. It's it's amazing. The food, I'm a huge foodie, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to to have a goal and and know to not have distractions getting in your way that are uh, going to ultimately prohibit you from from reaching that goal. Is there a particular type of food that you think is at its best in the city or that you have been exploring lately or, or that you want to explore? You know, I'm a huge, huge steak guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can find, you can walk outside and walk the block and find one of the best steaks you've ever had in, in the city. So it, it's not that hard of a search. Yeah. And Michael and I talk a lot about home runs and the home run rate is at its highest point ever. This is not something you've had a huge problem with on the mound thus far you've actually contributed to it you've hit four of the home runs but is this something that players talk about a lot is there anything that pitchers can do to avoid the home run when it seems like the ball is flying or hitters have found some way to make the ball go over the fence with great regularity yeah i think there's a shift in baseball now because when i first got in the league or uh, got drafted our the philosophy with the Blue Jays was they called it pound down productions, which mean like they wanted you to pound the ball down in the zone. And I think to like to induce a lot of ground ball outs, can't really get hurt when the ball is down. But I think nowadays people are trying to create like uh, like a Josh Donaldson. They're always trying to create backspin and launch angle. And I think the best way to, for you to, for a hitter to create that is for a down pitch. So you you see a lot of people. They're having a lot of success working up in the zone. And how does your height with your delivery 
affect where in the zone you want to pitch? Does it make it easier? Just do you want to pitch down because it's easier for you to get more plane on the fastball or does it make it easier for you to work up in the zone? Yeah, I definitely use my height to my advantage. Um, especially because I know I try to primarily try to work down in the zone because I'm so tall. It's really hard for hitters to get underneath the ball and, and elevate it. So most of the time they just end up beating it into the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about other trends, velocity increasing, strikeout rates increasing. You're kind of at the forefront of both of those trends as someone who throws really hard and gets a lot of strikeouts. And obviously this isn't really something that you should be worrying about probably because you have to worry about what's best for you and, and what makes you succeed. But do you think at all about the spectator experience? Do you think it makes a difference to baseball as a, a sport that people watch to have fewer balls in play, to have more guys swinging and missing? Do you think one way is better or worse than the other? Um, I mean, since I'm on the other side of the boat, basically I right. want to see more swing and misses as opposed to more home <laughs> runs, but I think they're both great for the game. When you see a balance of the two, I mean, I think a true passionate baseball fan could see the joy in a, a pitcher's duel as well as like a home run derby kind of thing. Do you think there's anything that could counter that trend? You know, we've seen velocity increase seemingly every year. We've seen strikeout rate. I think this is what the 12th consecutive season that the league wide strikeout rate has risen. Do you think there's anything that could counter that, that hitters could find a solution for, or is this something that, you know, it would take some sort of intervention by the league, which you're probably not rooting for to slow down or reverse. Mm, yeah. I hope they don't make any rule changes that, like that are going to be that drastic, but I mean, I, I see the home run rates going up. I see the strikeout rates going up, which is kind of interesting at the same time, but uh, yeah, I don't see a huge shift in things happening that the hitters can can do otherwise. You know, you talked about launch angle earlier and, you know, in other pitchers we've talked to, when they're talking about pitching up in the zone, they talk about spin rate on their fastball. How much do the Mets use those kind of stat cast numbers when they're talking to you guys? Or is it a, a personal choice? How much of that information do you want? And, you know, how much of the information do you want? Uh, yeah, I don't pay much attention to, to that, really. I just go out there and trust my stuff, pitch my strengths, and uh, let the hitters get themselves out. I don't think I have to pay much to attention to what my ball is doing. I can just look at the hitter and, and know what the ball is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can uh, find Noah on Instagram and Cindergard. You can find him on Twitter at Noah Cindergard. He is active and probably insulting Mr. Met on there as we speak. Uh, so we are glad you could come on. Thanks, Noah. Thank you, guys. All right. So we got out of that interview without anyone getting hurt any more than they already were. Anyone getting suspended, any mascots flipping anyone off or even a a Dan Patrick, Matt Harvey, Qualcomm situation. So I think that went better than most things about the Mets season so far, which uh, is a pretty low bar. You're just going in like this is (laughs) I I like how you've decided to be like mostly calm and non-controversial and then just go in on the Mets. 
Mets. This is <laughs> yeah. I've gone the other way on the Mets in the past. I've defended the Mets, or I've made the Mets situation out to seem better than many have portrayed it on previous podcasts. Things have not gone all that well since we had that conversation. So we had planned to ask Noah about his upcoming cameo in Game of Thrones. The we had to uh, end the call a little earlier than we had anticipated. But yeah, and when when Mal fires us for not getting to that, <laughs> uh, you know, I want to say it's been a pleasure doing this podcast with you. I mean, he has plenty of time to listen to binge mode while he is waiting for his his arm to heal. So yeah, I, every time he has been asked about it in the past, he's been extremely circumspect about the details. He's been uh, loyal to his Game of Thrones HBO NDA that I'm sure he had to sign. All we know is that he is going to appear as a, a Lannister very briefly in season seven. And given the arc of the show, I would guess that he's going to spend some time on the Lannister disabled list too. Yeah, given the arc of the Mets, I imagine he's <laughs> going to get cut in half pretty quickly. That's very possible. So it's hard to harp on the injuries with the guy who is already dealing with an injury and probably doesn't want to talk about injuries all the time. But it's something that has kept coming up with him throughout his career. I know that you have written and scrapped several drafts of the Noah Syndergaard is injured article before you actually had to write the real one when he went on the disabled list. But it's just always seemed like because of the way he pitches, he is perpetually on the verge of having something happen to him. And I don't know what can be done about that, because as he said, it's apparently not as if he can just take something off and still be as effective as he would be otherwise. So he'd really have to make a compromise. And it's a it's a generalized thing. And I think you mentioned the or at least alluded to the the Will Leach New York Magazine article where he talks mm-hmm. about all the hard throwing pitchers getting hurt. And we talked about this briefly off air that like it's just like the cost of doing business is if you're good pitching prospect you're just like you're gonna have Tommy John before you're 30 Mm -hmm. and I don't know I mean they're paying more attention to innings and workload we know more about biomechanics than we ever have before but just the incentive structure to throw Mm -hmm. hard and get strikeouts like I don't know how you change that in order to to preserve pitchers health and there's no there's no team incentive really to to do that because why would the Mets worry about Noah Syndergaard at age 32 when he's going to be a free agent before then? Mm-hmm. So they can just you know soak up his cost control years, and this is some of the you know Will wrote about that too. They can just soak up his cost control years, and it doesn't matter if there's no tread on the tire by the time he he cashes in. So right, and Syndergaard has to worry about. Cashing right. in. Right? He's, got so to, he can, <laughs> he's got to worry about that. But yeah, you know. well, I mean, he has to worry about it in the short term, too, right? He, it's not as if he can just take his foot off the pedal now before he makes the money because he's worried about later he has to make the money first. And it is a hard thing for a pitcher who's always, you know, had to throw hard and been told to throw hard and has had such success when he's thrown hard for him not to do that and to go against all of the feedback that hitters have been giving him by striking out over and over again. So it does seem like there's no easy solution. Obviously, I hope Syndergaard proves to be an exception because he's a lot of fun to watch, even if you're not a Mets fan. And, you know, he's a, a personality also, which is somewhat rare. We are constantly reading about how no one in the country has ever heard of any baseball players. And if there are any that they are going to hear about, Noah Syndergaard is close to the top of the list because of his height and his hair and his Game of Thrones cameo and how hard he throws. And 
the fact that he does show a personality on the internet. So you hope that he somehow escapes the injury tax. Yeah, who knows? All right. Well, we have another show coming up on Monday, which also happens to be the first day of the amateur draft. So we will be doing something about that. We'll We're going to gonna talk about college baseball and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm, yes. I've been maybe looking even high school to this. baseball. Yeah. Well, I know nothing about high school baseball, but <laughs> we're, we're going to ask our guests about that. Yeah. We'll talk about some draft prospects. We'll fill everyone in. We'll fill me in <laughs> in the process. So we will talk to you all then. For a great shave at a great price, join Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the Executive Razor and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shea Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash MLBshow.